Matthew chapter 24 is our text this morning, beginning in verse 29 through 31. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. This is actually part six of a series that we have been undertaking here at Calvary Bible Church. Part six of Christ's greatest prophetic discourse is what I have called it. By the way, it's interesting. If you poll most people in the United States and certainly in the world, you will find that Christians who believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are derided as the lunatic fringe of religion. And so I welcome you, fellow lunatics, as we humble ourselves before the infallible record and endeavor to understand more of the great truths that the Lord Jesus said about His second coming. You know, the events that Jesus has been describing that we have been studying concerning God's wrath as well as His mercy, all of that which will occur just before His second coming should really cause all of us to to just shudder, to just tremble at His holiness and at His righteous indignation and to bow in humble adoration at His sovereign power to think that we worship a God who can orchestrate the end from the beginning. That's an amazing thought in and of itself. And also, as we study prophecy, we find great comfort in his purposes, knowing that his plan cannot be thwarted by man or by devil. I think of Job 42 and verse 2. There we read, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. In fact, the vast body of prophetic literature reveals truths that really help confirm His sovereign might in our hearts. But along with that, it gives confidence to our faith. When we examine Scripture and we see all of the amazing things that were prophesied and have been fulfilled literally, And therefore, we have great confidence that all the rest of the things that he has promised will likewise be fulfilled as he has said. So all that he has promised will be fulfilled. In Ephesians 1.11, we read, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I rejoice in those wonderful truths. Well, once again, we approach the infallible record this morning with utmost care. We will, as always, endeavor to rightly divide the word of truth that is found here in our Lord's Olivet Discourse. The dominant theme, you will recall, is the parousia, the the manifestation, the coming presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a subject that requires great care as we examine it. In fact, as I think about it, the one of the parallel books, frankly, the parallel books to Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, which is the unveiling unveiling or the revealing, the uncovering of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at that book, we find that there is a special blessing reserved for those who study and who obey the prophecies of the book of Revelation, which again parallel Matthew 24. Revelation 1-3 we read, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. In other words, the era, the epoch, the season of the Lord's coming is near. And likewise in Revelation, Revelation 22:18, we read that there is a special warning against anybody that would dare edit anything in the prophetic word. Hardly an allegory, hardly something that we would spiritualize, but rather things that we would take very very seriously 
as we look at the normal meaning of words in God's word. And obviously the same warnings in the book of Revelation would apply to all of Scripture, certainly to the words of Jesus here this morning. That's why we want to be very careful as we look at Scripture. And as I say, uh, we want to use the same method of literal interpretation that is used in understanding Christ's first advent. We want to use that same method in understanding his second advent. And therefore, we must interpret words with their natural meaning, while at the same time, we want to consider the extensive use of figurative and symbolic language that's found in the prophetic literature. And certainly it's my prayer this morning that the prophetic word that we study will continue to stir your hearts with, with, with eager anticipation. I hope you join with me in just longing to see. I just cannot wait to see the Lord face to face. I can't wait to get rid of this sinful body that's gradually beginning to fall apart. You know, I can't wait to see certain loved ones that have gone on before. And it's for this reason that many times I will uh, autograph my book with, uh, with Titus 2, 11 through 14. And there we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. That is my prayer for all of us this morning. Now, by way of review, as you look at Matthew 24, Jesus in verses 4 through 14 has been answering the disciples' questions regarding the nature and the duration of Israel's desolation that Jesus has pronounced upon them because of their wickedness. And Jesus now is speaking to the to the disciples here, which are really the representatives of the Jewish remnant that will be alive during the time of the tribulation. He has described six very specific signs that will precede his coming. They're called birth pangs in verse 8. And Jesus has described the events of this time in the first seven verses of Matthew 24. There's going to be false messiahs. There will be nations at war. There will be natural disasters of epic proportions. And then there will be this great calamity, a great time of suffering that he mentions in verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then at that time, he goes on to warn the people that you better run for your life. And that abomination that causes desolation literally triggers what the Lord describes in Matthew 24:21 as the great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. By the way, again, by way of reminder, the first four sealed judgments of Revelation that of false peace, that of war, that of famine and death have taken place now in the first three and a half years of, that, of this time. What Jesus has called the beginning of birth pangs in Matthew 24, 8. And now in the second half of the tribulation, the frequency and the severity of the birth pangs will increase as God pours out the full fury of his wrath. There we will see the rest of the signs that Jesus predicted, that of persecution of tribulation saints, defection of and betrayal by false believers. We'll even see mass evangelism, unprecedented death and destruction, demonic deception, and so on. And now we're going to see in verses 29 through 31, the Lord really elaborating on the sequence of events that will lead up to his glorious appearing this unmistakable sign of his presence. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power 
and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, I would like to divide this text in basically three very basic divisions. We're going to see Jesus describing the scene of his second coming, the sign and the splendor, the scene, the sign and the splendor. First of all, in verse 29, notice with me the scene. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, the days here are, are those that he's been describing in verses 4 through 28. This, this will be the time of the end of the, the, of the great tribulation, as he says in verse 21. This will be the last half, the end of the last half of the three and a half years. By the way, it's sometimes described in the word of God as the day of the Lord. Let me elaborate on that for a moment. The future day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period of time as we look at the Scripture, but rather the day of the Lord refers to a, the, the final outpouring of apocalyptic judgment upon the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. By the way, it, 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 there's also a portion of it that is ultimately fulfilled at the end of the millennial kingdom as well. Now, unlike the rapture of the church when we are snatched away, which will not be preceded by any signs, the day of the Lord will have numerous precursors announcing its arrival. In fact, the day of the Lord is explicitly described in the Old Testament 19 times and four times in the New Testament as a time of unprecedented cataclysmic judgment on the wicked. Let me review those signs for you a bit as we just look in a very um, general way at Scripture. The first sign of the day of the Lord is found in Malachi 4.5, where we read of an Elijah-like forerunner that must appear. That text tells us, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, of course, we know, according to Luke 1.17, that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. A second sign, as we look at scriptures, is found in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 3. And there you will remember Paul is comforting the Thessalonian believers. They thought that they were living during this time of, of terrible judgment. They thought they had missed the rapture, and, the, and he is comforting them. And he is telling them in 2 Thessalonians 2 um, that the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So there's another precursor, a worldwide religious system of false religion. And certainly we see uh, the staggering fulfillment of this tragic reality even in our day. And ultimately it's just going to get worse and worse. And the third sign of the day of the Lord is found in that same text in verses 3 and 4. The day of the Lord, he says, will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And of course, we've studied that in other portions. This is a reference to the Antichrist. And then the fourth sign will be that of the, the battle of Armageddon when the nations will assemble in the valley of decision in this unimaginable slaughter. Uh, Joel 3, verses 2 through 14, describes this, as well as Zechariah 12, verse 3, and Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. A fifth sign of the day of the Lord is the inconceivable disruption in the heavenly bodies, we read this, for example, in Joel 2, beginning in verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. By the way, you can read more of this in Isaiah 13:10, as well as Jesus' words here in Matthew 24, 29, and Luke 21, 25, as well as Revelation 6, verses 12 through 13, and chapter 8 and verse 12. And then there is a sixth sign that really encompasses all of the birth pangs of which Jesus has been describing in Matthew 24, as well as paralleled in the first five sealed judgments of Revelation. And we've already discussed those. Then, dear friends, catch this now. When the false messiahs during this time have successfully duped the 
the ignorant and the rebellious masses into believing that there's still going to be some hope of peace and prosperity, the Holy Spirit reveals to us in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verses, verse 2 through verse 3, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Obviously, this differs with our president's very optimistic view of the world and many other people who believe that things are going to get better and better and better. In fact, there will never be any peace until the Prince of Peace comes and brings about peace. So, Jesus says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So, he's describing again the unprecedented cosmic disturbances that will basically indicate that he is about to arrive. And he speaks of this as well in, in Acts 2, beginning in verse 19, where we have a description of the day of the Lord as a time of wonders in the sky. Above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, obviously, the moon is not going to literally turn into blood. We wouldn't believe that. But this is probably a reference to the reddish copper color of the moon that occurs during an eclipse. And certainly this combined with the unprecedented atmospheric Pollution and disturbances would indicate that that as we look into the sky, those in that day would 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 not even be able to see the moon in its in its full brightness, but rather be more of a reddish copper color. So immediately after this season of divine wrath, this time of great tribulation, this day of the Lord, Jesus is describing the scene here. And in verse 29, he goes on and he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. By the way, he adds more insight to this in Luke's account in Luke 21, beginning in verse 25. And there, the Spirit of God through Luke reveals more of the horror of this time. There we read, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And upon the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. By the way, let me pause for a second. If the moon is disrupted, so too will the tides. Because the moon controls the tide. And no doubt this will be a result of the catastrophic disruption of the solar orbits. Jesus goes on in Luke 21 to say men will be fainting from fear. By the way, in the original language, fainting literally means to die from fright. And if you can imagine everything that you've always known is always there is now being disrupted. Combined with all of the other cataclysmic judgments that Jesus has described. Certainly this would not be far fetched to believe that men would actually be dying from fear. So men will be fainting from fear. And Jesus says, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So Jesus continues in verse 29 of Matthew 24. He says, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, beloved, please hear this. Think of it this way. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1, 3 is filled with righteous indignation at Satan. He's filled with rage against a world that has mocked and scoffed him for years and years. Those who have rejected the gift of the gospel of grace that is, has been proclaimed by the two witnesses, by the angel in heaven, by the 144,000 during the time of the tribulation. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power the creator and sustainer of all things is about to become the consummator of all things. He's about to, shall we say, pull the plug on his sustaining work. 
He is going to let things begin to unravel. Now, we know that he's not going to do it fully because the world will not be uncreated and recreated until at the end of the millennial kingdom. But it's about to be renovated. But before all of that, he is going to bring massive disruption upon his creation. He will supernaturally shake his created universe. That's the concept in the original language. The very creation that was, according to Romans 8, verse 19, subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, can you imagine the horror of that day, the horror in the hearts of men and women as they witness the heavens being shaken? All navigation on land and sea and in space will cease. Global positioning, positioning will become impossible. Satellites will be jarred out of their orbit and probably be careening off into space out of control, which means worldwide communication will no longer exist. You know, we've had samples of that just when we've had a power shutdown, haven't we, here in the United States. And it's amazing how quickly everything shuts down. Well, folks, you can add about ten digits to that and square it by about a thousand and you get an idea of what will be going on. Like a mother about to give birth, the pangs of divine wrath will increase in, 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 in severity and in frequency until the glorious earthly kingdom is born, just as he has promised. Now, here in verse 29, Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah's prophecy that was given some 700 years earlier concerning the immediate fall of Babylon, which, as is typical in much of the prophetic literature, foreshadowed a devastation that far exceeded the severity and scope of that event that occurred in 539 B.C., something that was projected onto a future judgment. And so in Isaiah 13, 6 through 13, this passage from which the Lord is quoting, here's what we read. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Likewise, the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, tells us this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory. We can also read in Joel a description of a locust invasion that he used to picture the catastrophic devastation and cosmic disorder that will occur in the coming future day of the Lord. Here's what Joel 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
And then in verse 10, we read the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army for his camp is very great for strong is the one who executes his word for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And then in verses 30 through 32, he goes on to say, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the, whom the Lord calls. And even a hundred years after Joel's prophecy, Isaiah also reveals this same scene as he describes the worldwide catastrophes associated with this time of judgment which is really previewed by his prophecies concerning the comparatively mild and geographically localized judgments upon Babylon by the Medo-Persians. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 34.1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear and the world and all that springs from it for the Lord's indignation against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter so their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. By the way, Edom is a reference to the region where the battle of Armageddon will be fought. Edom being the southernmost boundary of that Battle stretching 200 miles north all the way up to Lebanon, according to Revelation 14:20. Child of God, let me stop for a second. I, I've, I've just got to, to, to keep you balanced here as we read these incredible predictions of what is going to happen. Think of this. This is a foretaste of the eternal hell that awaits many of our friends and our family members. And, and again, this is just a foretaste of what those who stand in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ are going to experience. Those who, according to Romans 2.5, are full of stubbornness, who have an unrepentant heart, who are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath, when in His righteous judgment He will be revealed. And I trust that your heart is in agreement with the Apostle Paul's in 2 Corinthians 5.11, where he stated, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We need to be persuading our children and our wives and our husbands and our friends. Dear friends, nothing else has any meaning in comparison to these incredible realities that will fall upon the wicked someday. And yet, for the most part, people today are far more concerned about men chasing a football than they are about the coming day of judgment and divine wrath. What a tragic testimony to the depravity of man. Well, that's the scene. Let's look at the sign in verse 30. Jesus says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now, folks, this is very important. The grammar here in the original language helps us understand something here. When it says the sign of this, this does not refer to something that's going to be pointing to the son of man. But rather, the sign will be the son of man. This is not Greek students. This is not an objective genitive, but a subjective genitive. The sign is the son of man. You see, friends, against the backdrop of all of the darkness and all of the chaos, the ineffable light of the world will finally appear. 
the dazzling brilliance of his Shekinah will blaze forth in resplendent glory and majesty. And then, as we read in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, no Bible student should be unfamiliar with the general idea of what Jesus is describing here. The light of his presence, remember, uh, was, was that which... Um, was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. It was the same light that radiated on Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. It was the Shekinah glory that hovered between the cherubim over the mercy seat that divided the law in the Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God. That which blazed forth in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The glorious light of His presence surrounded the birth of Christ. Remember in Luke 2, the angel announced the Lord's birth to the shepherds. And he said, and and there we read that the glory of the Lord shone around them and how terrified they were. And in Matthew 2, we read of the blazing light of God's presence that led the Persian king makers from the east to the sight of the Savior and of the king. Later, Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. We read about it in his transfiguration when he peeled back his flesh and allowed the effulgence of the glory of God to emanate from his very person. This is the same light that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus and on and on it goes. And dear friends, this same glorious light is going to blaze forth yet again someday. Let me digress for a moment. Help you understand a little bit more of what I believe Jesus is describing. As we look at Scripture, we read that the triune God describes the glory of His presence as being this resplendent, brilliant, ineffable, unapproachable, dazzling light. I don't know how else to stack up the adjectives to get you to see this. In fact, in Daniel 2.22, we read that he emanates light without shadow, saying, light dwells with him. In Psalm 104, verse 2, it says that he covers himself with light as with a garment. And Paul describes Christ Jesus to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 as dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. And obviously someday every man's going to see him. And in 1 John 1 verse 5 we read that God is light and in him is no what? No darkness at all. Now, it's fascinating to me to read what scientists have to say about light. And really it's interesting. They first of all have absolutely no explanation for the original source of light. They don't know where it came from. Well, of course, the lunatic fringe knows where it came from. Because in Genesis 1-3, on the, the day one of creation, after God created the material uh, universe, we read that God created light by divine fiat. He spoke it into existence. There he said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And it was good. Beloved, think about this. The uncreated God of the universe, who dwells in unapproachable light, spoke the first created light into existence. Now, light is very easy to take for granted. Yet it's an amazing thing because it emanates from the very God who created it. Can you imagine a world without light? Nothing could exist. Light is the single most important source of energy and heat on the earth. And light is the very essence of God. It gives life to all things. Now, it's interesting to read physicists try to explain what they know about light. And they know some fascinating things. But they also admit that there's a lot of things they don't understand. They struggle to understand light. Now, in my feeble way, I'm a theologian, not a physicist. But I want to describe to you a few things that they say about light. And I want you to begin to see how this ties in to, I believe, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. They tell us that light is a form of energy made up of both particles and waves. Light, they say, acts like particles. There's a thing called light photons. Photons. 
that are like uh, minuscule little bullets that stream from its source and move at a measurable velocity. And they call this the speed of light. In fact, I checked on this. The speed of light is 299,792,458 meters per second. Now that's fast. And when certain objects obstruct light particles, it produces a shadow. But they also say that the light is also very different than a particle. It's also characterized by this wave that does not even exist in finite space. Am I beginning to lose you? Me too. And they say, now catch this, that light has no beginning and it has no end. Well, obviously, it emanates from God who has no beginning and who has no end. The eternally existent God. What a beautiful illustration of the God of glory. The Father of light who dwells in unapproachable light. Now, they go on to tell us that light waves are like ripples in space instead of bullets. And this explains, they say, how a rainbow works. And they say that this wave-particle duality is one of the most mystifying principles of physics. And that is that light waves behave like particles as well as the particle-like photons can behave like waves. They don't fully understand how all of that works. And these waves transfer energy from one point to another without the transfer of matter. And this is very different than the particle motion of the photons, they tell us. And because light has both electric and magnetic fields, it is also referred to as electromagnetic radiation. They say that light waves come in continuing variety of sizes, frequencies, and energies. And they refer to this continuum as the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, bear with me. They tell us that the human eye cannot even see light. And that light is completely invisible. All we see is light interacting with tiny particles of matter in the air that reflects it. The colors that we see in light literally depend upon varying wavelengths in the spectrum of light. And they say that, that visible light occupies only one one-thousandth of a percent of the spectrum of light. And it is only in this minute portion of this vast light spectrum that we're able to see colors. Now think of this, this energy spectrum of light. They tell us in, in, the, in, the, in the continuum here, it goes from radio to microwave to infrared. And then you've got in the middle just this little teeny piece where we can see this is visible light. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have ultraviolet, you have X-ray and gamma ray. It's staggering to think of this. All of the beautiful colors we can see make up only one one thousandth of one percent or one thousandth of one percent of the spectrum of light. And yet look at all of the glory that we can see in that minute little portion of the spectrum. Inconceivable. Now, obviously, you know where I'm going with this. What's it going to be like when you see the full spectrum? I mean, your, your brain begins to smoke and shrivel up. Now, if you think of this continuum of light, if we were to say that this light continuum is one mile, one one thousandth of a percent would be smaller than the width of a human hair in one mile. And yet God has allowed us to see all that we see in this minuscule range of light, all of the dazzling colors. Now, beloved, here's my point with this little lesson in physics God has only revealed a minuscule portion of himself through his creation and through his word. But dear friends, the whole world will see his full spectrum of glory when he returns again as the son of man appearing in the sky. Indeed, as the prophet said in Numbers 24:17, a koshav or a blazing forth will come forth from Jacob. Now back to Matthew 24 and verse 30. Notice what the Lord goes on to say. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
Now, I don't believe this is a morning of repentance, but one of despair over impending judgment. Now, admittedly, many will mourn in repentance. They will mourn over their sin and heartfelt repentance. We see this in, for example, in Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 11, where there is a graphic portrayal of the heart of, of, of many of the repentant Jews of that day. But here, where it says all the tribes, or it could be translated all the families of the earth, are kopenstai in the Greek. It's, it's the idea of, of their mourning in despair at the horrific prospect of divine judgment. Boy, if I had shaken my fist at God and the Lord Jesus Christ all my life as these people, as this text indicate that they have, and then all of a sudden I see him in all of his glory, I think I'd be mourning too. By the way, this is consistent with Revelation 1, 7, where the Holy Spirit promised, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. By the way, as a footnote, it's, it's, it's unimaginable, but according to Revelation 16 and verse 9, despite the inconceivable agonies, of divine wrath that is poured out upon the earth during this time. The text says they still blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing. By the way, the same thing is repeated in a different way in Revelation 16:11 and verse 21. So, beloved, we see the scene and we've seen the sign. Let's look at the splendor. In verse 30, towards the end, he says, And they will see the sign of, of, of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, I don't fully understand what this means. I've read virtually all that has been written on this in terms of the different positions. And nobody really understands. It's probably a reference to a supernatural phenomena that will allow the glorious light of his presence to be, to be seen around the globe all at one time. I've not read anybody that has, that, that has really thought through the implications of the light spectrum. Um, and, and somehow I believe that perhaps some of this would be a part of, of the Lord's appearing. I, I don't think it will just be nice fluffy clouds all around the world where everybody can see. It, it would seem to be far, far more glorious than that. But it's interesting um, in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, God reveals himself to Daniel and he says, As with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. He goes on to say that he's coming and he came up to the ancient of days as, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of, ev of every language might serve him. And again, in Romans 1, 7, as we've already read, the Holy Spirit promised that, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Perhaps some kind of a glory cloud. I don't really know, but I know it will be glorious. What an amazing scene, dear friends. Suddenly, the ineffable brilliance of divine glory will illumine the whole world that is being shaken, that is filled with chaos and wickedness and darkness. And you want to know something that's even more amazing? And that is that when he appears, we are going to appear with him. Now, a lot of people get confused with this. They think that we're all waiting for the second coming. I'm not waiting for the second coming. I'm waiting for the rapture of the church. I'm waiting to be snatched away. In the rapture of the church, we read that he comes for his saints. We meet him in the air. In the second coming, we come with him. He comes or we come with him. In fact, in Colossians 3, 4, here's what it says. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, think about this as we look at Scripture. And I'll just give you a bird's eye view of some of this. The, the church has been raptured. The bride of Christ has been uh, attending what Revelation 19, 7 describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb along with the Old, Old Testament saints, who, according to verse 9, are those who are invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. The, the bride doesn't need to be invited. The Old Testament saints, I believe, will be. And apparently, both Old Testament believers, those who have 
who placed their faith in God's merciful grace before the incarnation, along with the bride, the, the church that has been raptured, who need no invitation, as I say, to the wedding feast. Apparently, we will all accompany the Savior and, and our King as he descends upon the earth when he goes into battle. Revelation 19, verse 14, we read, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, a reference to our righteousness in Christ, were following him on white horses. The idea, perhaps not literally on white horses, horses always seem to indicate a force, a power, but somehow we will be coming with him. As you read these texts, you read that we are unarmed, we're in glorified bodies, but obviously the Lord Jesus is armed. He is armed with the broadsword of, of truth and holiness, the romphia, as it's described, that's coming from his mouth, according to Revelation 19 and verse 15, that he may smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. I will never forget that time the first time I ascended Mount Carmel in Israel. By the way, you will recall that Mount Carmel was the place when, where Elijah did battle with the prophets of Baal and the Lord sent down the fire and all of that. An incredible story. But the first time I ascended that mount, I was able to get up on top and I was able to gaze across, not all of, but much of the vast valley of Megiddo, that place where the battle of Armageddon will someday be fought. And I remember when I stood there, I, I found myself just being overwhelmed with the prophetic truths that surround this particular scene someday. To know that someday after I have been and you have been snatched away, I believe for seven years, we have, we have been with the Lord. And then we suddenly... Come with Him as we are revealed with Him in glory, as Colossians says. We're going to descend upon this wicked world. And I was thinking that someday, up there, I'll be coming down with my Savior and my King. And my eyes just filled with tears and much of the other folks that were, were with me. We, we all started talking about this and we read some of these passages and began to sing together. To think that someday, dear friends, we will, we will follow our invincible warrior king as he enters the fray. A, a, a heavenly army of overcomers. The true church. Those of us saved by grace. The lunatic fringe. And as I was thinking about this the other day, that great phrase in that hymn came to my mind. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears. For gladness breaks like morning where thy face appears. Thy cross is lifted o'er us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. And indeed, dear friends, He will lead on. He will come, as He says at the end of verse 30, with power and great glory. Dear friends, he's coming again someday, not in humility as he did the first time, but in glory. He will come in power to defeat those who oppose him, both man and demon. All of the mockers, all of the scoffers will be silenced forever. He will come in unveiled glory that no human eye has ever been able to see. A time of judgment, also a time of reconciliation, and even a time of renovation when he renovates the earth and returns it back to Edenic splendor for that long-awaited promise of that millennial kingdom. Dear friends, this will be the time when the fullness of the Gentiles described in Romans 11.25 has now been completed. And as we go on to read there, and thus all Israel will be saved. Can't be a reference to the church. The church is already saved. This will be the time when Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And then Jesus adds in verse 31, And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. What an astounding thought to think that there will someday be a mighty host of holy angels that will gather both the wheat and the tares into a 
in, in a worldwide harvest. The, the, the wheat, the believers, will be gathered to receive their rewards of eternal blessings that are, are, are prepared and, and, and for them. And they will also be prepared to enter into the millennial kingdom. We'll talk about that more at a later time. Those who have trusted Christ during the seven-year tribulation, they will be gathered. As, as, by the way, the Old Testament saints, according to 1 Corinthians 15:23, will also at this time receive their resurrected bodies. But the unbelievers will be gathered together to meet their judge. In fact, Jesus spoke of this in his parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 39. Here's what he had to say. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, referring to the enemy that sows the tares. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears. Let him hear. What a merciful God, dear friends, that continues to tarry for yet another sinner to repent. And if that is you, I pray that you will not wait until it's too late. If you're without Christ, today is the day you should trust Him as your Savior and Lord. And believers, I just pray that the hope of His coming will stir your hearts to a new level of loyalty and faithfulness as we serve the one who deserves our utmost, the one whose face we could see at any moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. May they stir our hearts to worship You in ways that perhaps we never have before. May this hope indeed be a purifying hope for each of us. And may we make it a priority to spread the glorious gospel of Christ to men and women and boys and girls who are lost in their sin. And Lord, if there be such a one here today or within the sound of my voice, Lord, how I pray that by Your convicting power, You will overwhelm them with the truth of their iniquities. And may they see that it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that the law can be satisfied. And may today be the day that they place their faith in the one and the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.